Back to it. Just getting started here. Hello, Victoria. Nice to see you. How are yeah. you? Who, Victoria, was that for you? Or? Yeah, yeah, she just landing. She just literally oh, landed. Okay. <laughs> and oh she my wanted God. to be around. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> It's great. so nice hearing you. Yeah, I I just been so busy. It's it's great to be here. This is um this will be interesting. Yeah, I agree. I hope I was at a conference. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, no, tell me about it. Well, I was at a conference, uh, you know, work related. I had a speaking engagement and. Um, it was just really kind of interesting because uh, it's been a while since I've actually done an in-person on-stage speaking engagement. So, Oh, how, um, how did it go? Did you enjoy it? Oh, it went just it went just fine. You know, all this time in Clubhouse really refines your public speaking skills. <laughs> but when you're actually on a, on a stage and there's live people in the audience, it's it's fun because you just want to get closer to them, engage with them and <laughs> You get to see their reactions and look in their eyes. <laughs> so, so did you approach it somehow differently than before Clubhouse? Like, oh, definitely. Uh, well, I, well, I've noticed. I've noticed that even just in conference calls, you know, I, I, I treat. I even use. I used reset the room in a business call the other day too. <laughs> but. Um, it's just, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Hi, Joyce. Yeah, Joyce, come up. Thanks for coming, Joyce. How are you? Oh, just to let you guys know, I think we will limit the moderation team to the current moderation. Uh, team like um, let's let's limit mm -hmm. the today just to kind of control the discussion a little bit. Thank you. Okay, yeah, might get a little controversial. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll work. It'll work better this way. Yeah, how is everyone today? But Joyce, we, we speak a lot lately. <laughs> how are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. I was just, I just had good news about my app today. I was getting concerned that some people were having trouble beta testing it. But then today someone came over to my house, a relative, and we got it to work. And so I'm happy. <laughs> Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Congratulations. <laughs> that's big news. Yeah, if anybody wants to beta test, contact me and let me know. It should be interesting. Yeah, if you have an Apple, you have to have an Apple Watch. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm interested. I have an Apple Watch, so okay. let me know. Thank you. 
Thanks. I have one that's completely unused, which is so stupid. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> have you had it a long I've time? I've one. It's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, I'm without myself. Uh, I will out myself as becoming a helicopter parent just because I have a girl now. <laughs> uh, I kind of, I don't know, we go to parks a lot and stuff like that in the city. And then I bought my daughter just an Apple Watch with the, with the, with the, um, you know, with the data and stuff. So I can track her in case something happens. So, anyway, it's a little bit crazy, probably. But <laughs> my niece has an Apple Watch now, and she loves it. She's, she's. Um, I think she had a. She may have had a Fitbit when she got some birthday money. I'm still a ways off from those things. I'm not sure. I, I'm close to somebody who has one and it's kind of annoying. So I'm not sure I want to go there. It's convenient though. I mean, I didn't, I was only getting it for research purposes really, but it is kind of convenient when you, sometimes you don't have your phone with you and you get a message on your watch and you can talk on your watch. <laughs> but I can understand sometimes it might be annoying if someone's always looking at their watch. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be, especially in the lab, like if you cannot take everywhere your phone, like it's, it's really good because I would miss, I got so many complaints all the time that I would miss like messages, calls, my the school from the kids and it was always my husband getting it because yeah i used to you know to work in a lab where signals from the phone can interrupt basically the the cell signals like so <laughs> yeah it was not good hi heidi welcome thank hi, you for heidi. Just to remind, um, the unmute button is all the way on the bottom right. Uh, you press the little, oh, yep, perfect. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Um, I have not been on Clubhouse in a while, so thanks for your help. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it and we are really looking forward to it. And we yeah. have a minutes so uh we'll start on top of the hour um okay. yeah great and everyone feel free to share the room if you feel like it um i'm doing the same in the meantime and uh yeah we're looking forward to to this discussion thank you great and folks have the slides if they want them so i can just talk yeah, we pinned the link to the slides on the top of the room. Great. And so the audience will be able to follow along. Great. Thank you.
Yeah, okay. um, sorry for being silent. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Serena. Well, I was just going to say, um, Heidi, we, before you got here, we were just mentioning that this is um, this is going to be a really interesting talk, and it represents, um, you know, reaching out in for science society as well. And um, I think uh, it's it's a timely topic and a really important topic. And um, so when we when we get going, we we thought, you know, we'll we'll keep the the stage uh, where it is now and we'll let you deliver your talk and we'll go into a Q&A afterwards. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is unfortunately quite timely. <laughs> <laughs> and it's important um, that we, you know, provide uh, factual information on the matter. And, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes. And we also thought it was good to to keep it as a you know a public health information talk and um, and not a debate. Yes. Yeah. I think most of the orientation to how I've put this talk together um, is sort of oriented to a scientist or public health audience, sort of bringing abortion into the space of this is a health service. It's um, a reproductive health event and it's situated squarely within. Um, there's overwhelming evidence on safety and effectiveness. And so it's, it's not a political topic. It's a public health topic. Yes. That has been politicized. <laughs> <laughs> Very unfortunate. Yes. Yeah. So I think we can uh, we can start and um, yeah, I appreciate everything both of you said and you know, um, I think it's yeah, it's really wonderful and important the work you do. But before we start, um, I want to welcome everyone to the Science Society and of course. A special welcome uh, to you, Heidi, and um, and let me introduce you here um, before we start, so people get to know you a little bit and um, you know what you do. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Heidi Moseson, she's a senior research scientist in Oakland, California. She um, at Ibis. Um, she is an epidemiologist, sorry, my English is not perfect, whose past and current research includes epidemiologic studies to improve methods and understanding and reproductive health research. Uh, currently, Heidi's research is focused on evaluating safety and effectiveness of self-managed medication abortion in various contexts. And she is developing a more accurate clinical and research screening tool for transgender and non-binary people, testing strategies to reduce underreporting of sensitive experiences in surveys, and understanding the family planning needs and experiences of transgender and gender expansive people. Uh, she uses um, different 
methods um, and her expertise um, is in study design and implementation, measurement development and testing and causal inference methods. She is author of over 35 peer-reviewed publications and um, Heidi um, went as an undergrad and uh, studied human biology and international relations at Stanford University and um, she did her master's in public health in epidemiology and biostatistics from the University of California Berkeley and then she did her PhD in epidemiology from the University of California San Francisco. Um, so it's an honor to have you here today and um, thank you so much for coming and before we start we usually uh, start with like a couple of interview questions if that's okay with you and and Serena the the microphone is yours thank you great okay yes thank you um so just for the benefit of the audience to get to know a little bit more about you and and um you know the work that you're doing um but in specifically you um can you think back to a time perhaps earlier in your childhood where you knew you wanted to get into science uh was there a particular event or did you always know or can you tell us a little bit about your oh, interest that's such a great question um so as the intro specified the topic of this talk. <clears throat> My research is in reproductive health, specifically a lot around abortion. Um, and I'll say growing up, I was, I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor providing care to patients. Um, my mother was an um, immigrant abortion provider, which shaped a lot of my worldview around abortion. But um, as I progressed through my schooling, I think I realized I felt in medical provision, there was this great sort of one-on-one -on -one ability to impact an individual's life, but I became more and more drawn to sort of population health science approach and thinking about what impacts populations rather than thinking exclusively about the individual level. Um, so that's sort of an answer to your question. And I think just being drawn to the idea of we have lots of ideas about the world, but sometimes they're wrong. So figuring out systematic ways of testing those. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Such, um, you know, how, how the interest um, grew out of your early experiences. Could you take us um, from, from that point to the work that you're going to present us today? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned this interest in population health. So from that interest, um, I, I studied in undergraduate, you know, studied health and international relations, which took me after graduating to live abroad and work in the Ministry of Health context. Um, and as part of that work, I was traveling around the country. This was in Liberia and West Africa. Um, and as, to do the survey I was doing, I had to spend the night in clinics across rural areas in the country. And it was an incredible experience, met so many impressive people. And um, in many of the clinics I was staying in, while we were sleeping there overnight, 
um, women would come in with experiences having attempted to end their pregnancies with very unsafe methods. Um, and it was for me, a certainly for the women that were there and as an observer, it was a very um, difficult experience and just very much impressed upon me sort of how important this issue is. Um, and that sort of led me to abortion care. And um, oh, just one second. Yeah, I can relate. My kids, I, um, you know, in the background are being put in beds, which is not always <laughs> the easiest task of the day. So we'll. Um, We'll wait and... Um, I'm so sorry. I'm back. Yeah, right. I was just um, saying, back on my kids are being put to bed. So it's not yes. always the easiest time. It was my, my youngest running in. Um, yeah, so all to say sort of broad level population interests, some specific experiences sort of very much opened my eyes to what it means when people don't have access to safe um, abortion care. And that sort of has led me down my path, which turned into a master's and a PhD um, in epidemiology to um, study sort of sensitive or stigmatized health experiences, which um, abortion is certainly um, a sensitive and stigmatized health experience given the world that we live in. It certainly is. And um, with that, uh, I just want to uh, um, give a reminder to the audience uh, due to the sensitive nature of this talk, we're for the content of the talk, we'll keep the, the stage to where it is now, but then we can open it up for Q&A um, at the end. And so with that, Heidi, uh, well, this, the, the mic is yours. Thank you so much. So um, all of this is my first Clubhouse talk. So thanks everyone for bearing with me if I do something wrong. <laughs> But my understanding is that the slides I'll be talking from are posted up at the top of the session. So if you'd like to follow along with visuals, um, please find those there. So again, my name is Heidi Moseson. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I'm my official title is I'm a senior research scientist at IBIS Reproductive Health. I'm based in San Francisco, California. Um, I'm really thankful to all of you as organizers for um, inviting me to speak here. So. Um, I am an epidemiologist by training. That's what I did my master's and PhD in. Um, and the organization where I work is a nonprofit research organization with offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Oakland, California, and Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, and most of the research we do focuses on sexual and reproductive health. So the talk I'm gonna give today uh, is much broader than what I usually give as a scientist and probably broader than what many of you give um, rather than just presenting backgrounds, methods, and results from a single study or analysis, as I would usually do because of the moment we find ourselves in, in the United States and in much of the world and sort of these monumental and catastrophic legal restrictions that we're seeing roll out across the country. Um, it felt important to take the opportunity to zoom out a bit um, and sort of summarize the public health research that we have on on abortion in terms of basic epidemiology, in terms of safety, incidents, et cetera, but also what we know about the impact of abortion bans and um, particularly the area of research where I work 
most intensively is on safety and effectiveness of non-clinical methods of abortion. So primarily when people use pills outside of clinic setting on their own, you've probably heard this referred to as self-managed abortion. Um, and this is like an increasingly the safe option for people as clinical care is further and further restricted um, across the country. So I just, I want to name like, I don't know the knowledge each of you bring to this space. Um, and I imagine there's a range of familiarity. So maybe some will be too broad for some of you, but hopefully there's um, enough detail here for everyone. Um, so I'll talk for about, I, I think it'll take me just, you know, 30 minutes or so, and then there's time for Q&A at the end. So um, moving to slide two, again, um, I'm going to talk just a little bit what methods of abortion exist in this country. Um, what do we know about safety and effectiveness? Framing abortion squarely as a public health issue. Um, talking about where we are in the US, how we got here, what we know from the research about the public health impact of some of the legislative changes we're seeing with regard to abortion. And then sort of what's next and hopefully leaving you with you some thoughts for those of you who are scientists interested in science, sort of what the research gaps are, where there are challenges, um, and how to hopefully um, leave each of you as scientists and researchers from your various disciplines thinking about what you can have to say about abortion and what the science tells us about abortion. Um, okay, so slide three, abortion 101, if you will. Um, so I want to just start with abortions are extremely safe procedures with very few medical adverse effects. Um, indeed, at any gestation, abortion is safer than pregnancy. There was a definitive 2015 study of about 55,000 abortions that took place in the state of California and determined that major complications occur in less than 0.5% of abortions at any stage of pregnancy. And complications, which we measure as any additional care received, including a visit to an emergency department, occur in approximately 2% of abortions. There was also a landmark report from the National Academy of Sciences in 2018 that looked at decades of clinical epidemiologic and social science evidence and concluded that abortions provided in the United States are overwhelmingly safe and effective. So to give you all a bit of grounding in what abortion entails, um, there are medical and procedural methods of abortion. Both are recommended by the World Health Organization, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and other professional bodies for abortion. So sometimes you hear people say induced abortion, and that's to distinguish from miscarriage, which is otherwise called spontaneous abortion. When I say abortion, I'm talking about induced abortion. So what type of abortion you have or the protocol for it varies depending on how far along the pregnancy is. So for pregnancies less than 12 to 14 weeks, the recommended procedural method is called manual or electric vacuum aspiration. It's a simple procedure which uses suction of a syringe to remove the pregnancy tissue from the uterus. A thin tube is guided through the cervical opening into the uterus. The syringe is attached to the tube and used to remove the contents of the uterus. It takes um, less than 10 minutes. So that's sort of procedural abortion. Then there's medication abortion, also called abortion pill or abortion with pills. It involves either one medication, which is mesoprostol, or taking two medications together, which is mesoprostol in combination with mifepristone. And these medications cause a process that's very similar to a miscarriage. Mesoprostol is usually dissolved under the tongue and mifepristone is swallowed. 
both of these regimens, mesoprostol alone or with mifepristone, are safe and highly effective. You know, they will end the vast majority of pregnancies, well over 95%, um, without the need to do anything else. So I'll, I'll tell you some more about that later. Later in pregnancy, the recommended procedural or surgical method is called dilation and evacuation, which uses vacuum aspiration and forceps. Sometimes medications, um, medications can also be used later in pregnancy um, and are sometimes used in combination with the procedural methods. So moving to the next slide, slide four, um, just to present some models of abortion care. So people access abortion through and have preferences for a wide range of models of care, including clinic-based models where that's available and desirable, which includes abortion care instrumented or medication provided by a clinician in person at a permanent clinic or a mobile clinic. Or so that's like you go to a clinic, you have your abortion in a clinic, you go home. There's also a remote clinical provision through telemedicine where you meet via video with a physician and are and take your first pill over video and then complete the rest of the medication abortion at home. There's also pharmacy access. People can access medication through a pharmacist or drug seller with or without prescription. And then there's self-managed abortion, which I mentioned earlier. It can be defined as any action a person takes to end a pregnancy without clinical supervision. It could be completely on their own, you know, getting the medication through a pharmacist or online. It could be reliable information from non-clinical sources or non-clinically trained counselors like websites, safe abortion hotlines or through feminist abortion accompaniment, which are grassroots networks that provide information, support in person or on the phone, and an enabling environment for people to self-manage their abortions safely. So next slide, um, which is, this is the graph of abortion is a common experience globally. So in terms of incidents, many people around the world have abortions. Um, this graph is from a 2020 study done by the WHO and the Guttmacher Institute based in New York that sought to estimate abortion incidents. Um, this is really, it's like a one year look. Um, and they looked at one year incidents across different regions. So globally, they estimated the annual abortion rate to be 64 abortions per 1000 women of reproductive age, which roughly corresponds to 73 million abortions globally each year. And I think something that's important to think about as we're seeing more legal restrictions in the US, um, which ostensibly are to reduce abortions. Um, this study that looked across regions and countries found there are no appreciable differences in the abortion rate between countries where abortion is legally protected and where it is criminalized. So making abortion illegal um, can change the safety of abortion, can change how and where abortion takes place. But usually when people need to end a pregnancy, they will try to find some way to do it. So turning, moving to the next slide, um, turning to the US where I am situated, where the focus of what I'll talk about today is, um, here is a plot also from the Guttmacher Institute that looks at the number of abortions in the US for each of the years since 1973, which was when Roe v. Wade first legalized abortion in the US. Um, so when we look at the most recent year for which we have data, which is 2020, there were just under a million abortions in the United States in that year. So that translates to about one in five pregnancies in the US ending in abortion. Um, so again, in my role as an epidemiologist, I think a lot about measurement. There's a lot that goes into getting to this estimate and 
Abortion is something that's difficult to measure. It's sensitive, it's stigmatized. Asking people directly, have you had an abortion? Doesn't always work very well for a lot of sort of obvious privacy, confidentiality, stigma reasons. So there's a lot of very interesting methods people have developed to try to measure it better. For any of you who are methodologists, happy to talk more about that later. Um, and I think just perhaps to state the obvious, but in terms of who has abortions, the short answer is all kinds of people. The more epi answer is um, to characterize people in broad strokes is that well, one in four women in the US will have an abortion in their lifetime. Um, and this includes about, or in addition, about 500 trans and non-binary people at a minimum have abortions each year in the US. Um, most abortion patients are in their 20s. Most abortion patients are parents, um, almost 60%, um, about 75% are below the federal poverty level, and most identify with a Christian faith. Um, and a good proportion over half had used the contraceptive in the month they became pregnant. People of all races and ethnicities seek abortion. Um, again, perhaps seeing the obvious. Um, moving to the next slide, just to quickly say a US public opinion on abortion, what you would hear in the news, what you may see in conversation. It's abortion is often presented as a very polarizing issue. Um, but fairly consistently, we see that public opinion, majority of people in the US are supportive of some legal protections for abortion access. Um, moving to the next slide, abortion is a public health good. What I hope to do in, again, not too many minutes, but um, to sort of frame and situate abortion as a um, essential health service and a common health experience in people's lives. So given the context I just gave of how many abortions take place in the US, um, I'm gonna to try to summarize some of this just truly overwhelming public health evidence that affirms sort of the large and um, wide ranging benefits that access to abortion holds for people's lives. So just to flag it for those of you who aren't familiar um, as a starting place for this conversation, some history is important. In the United States in 1994, Black women social justice leaders created the framework of reproductive justice. Reproductive justice is a movement that's firmly grounded in human rights principles and sees abortion and other reproductive health services as resources that everyone is entitled to, such as healthcare, education, housing, and food. It's a contemporary framework for activism that holds the following principles, that people have the right not to have a child, the right to have a child, and the right to parent children in safe and healthy environments, free from many forms of you know, state violence, state interference, et cetera. Um, and abortion is a key component of ensuring that these rights are met. So um, I wanna talk here about, there's been some seminal epidemiological and social science research that's measured the effects of obtaining or being denied an abortion. Um, over in the acute immediate term, and then also over years following the ability to obtain or not obtain an abortion. Um, these benefits of abortion, of obtaining abortion include dramatic reductions in pregnancy-related morbidity and mortality. So um, when you think about, for those of you that are scientists, there's this concept of the counterfactual, what would happen if something else didn't happen. So when you talk about abortion, when you deny someone access to abortion, it's not just like, well, they stay the same. It means that they will continue a pregnancy and that pregnancy will end it somehow, whether it's through birth or not. For most people, it results in giving birth. 
So now while abortion is extremely safe at any gestation, pregnancy confers a relatively high risk of death or temporary and permanent inabilities or disabilities, particularly in this country, in the United States, where we have high maternal mortality and morbidity and shameful disparities across racial and ethnic lines, where black birthing people are nearly three to four times as likely to die in childbirth. So denying someone abortion care directly increases risks to their physical health and safety. Beyond reducing the risk of these sort of pregnancy-related morbidity mortality pieces, there's also a lot of robust research that looks that people who get abortions have an increased ability to set and achieve educational, career, and family goals, greater likelihood of escaping poverty, better developmental outcomes for their current children and children they go on to have over subsequent years, increased likelihood of leaving abusive relationships, and much more. And we see these same results consistently across studies of different designs. So just to delve into one on the next slide that says the turnaway study. Um, this is a um, this is one of a really seminal study and what we know about abortion receiving or being denied an abortion over time. Um, so this study, the Turnaway study, was led by PI Dr. Diana Green Foster, who's a demographer at UCSF and a team of a lot of really brilliant researchers. Um, I've been privileged to work on analyses and publications from this study in my doctoral training and since then. Um, but the Turnaway study was a prospective study that utilized a sort of pseudo natural experiment esque regression discontinuity design that looked that took the fact that there is variation in state gestational age cutoffs across states in the US. So in some states, you can get an abortion to up till 20 weeks. In some states, you can get it till 24 weeks. Now, in some states, you can't get it past six weeks or not at all. But because the study was conducted between about 2010 and 2016, researchers measured the effects of receiving versus being denied a wanted abortion for the pregnant person and also measured um, outcomes on the children that those people had or went on to have. So it was about a thousand women seeking abortion at 30 facilities across the country. And people were followed up with telephone interviews every six months over five years. So the findings from this study are very strikingly clear about the benefits of receiving abortion and the harms of being denied an abortion. Um, just to name a few specifically, People who were denied abortion, which are called the turnaway group, um, they were more likely to experience serious complications from the end of pregnancy, including eclampsia and death, more likely to stay tethered to abusive partners, more likely to suffer anxiety and loss of self-esteem in the short term after being denied abortion, less likely to have aspirational life plans for the coming year, more likely to experience poor physical health for years after the pregnancy, including chronic pain and gestational hypertension. Um, and also that being denied abortion has serious implications for children born of unwanted pregnancy, as well as for children that were are, you know, already there in the family um, and serious socioeconomic consequences as well. People were four times more likely to live below the federal poverty level and three times more likely to be unemployed um, at each of the time points they looked at over the five years. So to, moving to the next slide. To summarize in very plain language, abortion bans are bad for public health. So beyond the turnaway study, much other epi research has focused on measuring the harms of policies that restrict access to abortion care, whether those are policies related to gestational age limits, restrictions on insurance coverage for abortion, parental involvement laws for minors, 
targeted regulation of abortion providers, and much more. Um, so to summarize, in nearly all the ways abortion has been studied, in the various restrictions, et cetera, that have been looked at, we see that being able to access abortion care is beneficial for individual and public health, and that restricting access to abortion care is harmful at individual and family levels. So moving to the next slide, how did we get here? Um, I know many people felt surprised by the decision, by the Adobe's opinion in June, um, but unfortunately this was sort of a long time coming. The current state of abortion in the US is the culmination of decades of increasing restrictions on abortion at the state level. So in 2021, 108 state level abortion restrictions were passed. Um, these restrictions fall under sort of four broad categories, abortion bans that um, ban abortion past a certain gestational limit. Uh, another category is restrictions on medication abortion, explicitly prohibiting telehealth for medication abortion, um, putting gestational limits on medication abortion, despite it being safe and effective throughout a pregnancy. Um, these trap laws, which I mentioned, which are geared at forcing abortion clinics to close, passing restrictions that require hallways to be a certain number of inches, um, requiring providers to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals, etc. And then the fourth category is restrictions focused on the individual's experience. So things like requiring waiting periods, making people wait 24 to 48 hours between a counseling session and then coming back for the actual abortion appointment, forcing people to view an ultrasound, forcing people to hear the heartbeat, forcing medical providers to read inaccurate information about the risks of abortion uh, to the patient. Um, all of these, the ultimate goal is just chipping away access at a state level. So, you know, we've there's been decades of public health research focused on measuring what is the impact of these restrictions. Um, and anyways, I tried to summarize some of that. Um, and I will say, despite sort of these increasing number of restrictions, there have been some wins, you know, all this research has been used across court cases at both state um, and federal levels. So in 2016, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt in Texas at the Supreme Court um, and June Medical versus Russo in Louisiana in 2020. In both of these Supreme Court cases, the Supreme Court ruled that state level abortion restrictions posed an undue burden on people seeking abortions and were ruled unconstitutional. And these were great um, encouraging examples of the use of research in informing these decisions and policy. Um, both of those cases heavily cited public health research documenting the harms of the laws and the opinions. But um, we've now, I guess, you know, moving to the next slide, Roe v. Wade overturned. Um, as you all know, on June 24th, the Supreme Court issued their decision on the case, um, their opinion in the case on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And this was a case brought by Jackson Women's Health Organization, the sole abortion provider in the state of Mississippi and it challenged Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion as unconstitutional. The ban was actually passed in 2018, but was under an injunction, so it wasn't allowed to go into effect. Um, but in the ruling on this case, not only did the court's conservative majority hold that Mississippi's 15-week ban could go into effect, they overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was the 1992 decision, arguing that the U.S. Constitution does not confer a right to abortion and giving full power to regulate abortion to the states. 
again, I'm sure you're all aware, the decision was widely condemned by civil rights organizations, reproductive rights organizations, the UN, the World Health Organization, professional medical and public health bodies, such as the American Medical Association, ACOG, as well as world leaders in the European Parliament. So where are we now? Um, this slide sort of with the map of the US here um, depicts this sort of patchwork state that's in constant flux where we are now. With the overturning of Roe v. Wade, states hostile to abortion access no longer need to slowly chip away at access via things like waiting periods and guidance on the width of hallways for abortion clinics. They are fully empowered to pass abortion laws that not only ban access to abortion, but also criminalize people seeking abortions or those who support them. In the week since the Supreme Court um, opinion it was issued, they've been chaotic, particularly in states with what we call trigger laws, which were abortion bans passed in states uh, written to go into immediate effect in the event that Roe v. Wade was ever overturned. Um, so clinics in these states have had to rapidly close out of concern for legal repercussions as these laws are argued in state courts. Sometimes they're able to open for a few days when there's an injunction only to close again. Um, and in the interim, people who need abortions are forced to jump through tremendous logistical, financial, and emotional hurdles to try and obtain an abortion with constantly shifting availability. The clinic access really is changing almost day to day. So this map is from the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is I think kind of the most up-to-date um, resource for tracking this in real time. This is from a few days ago. Um, the states in dark red that you see here have total bans currently in effect. Lighter red are hostile. Either bans have not yet gone into effect, but or they have a six-week abortion ban. And then those in yellow are states with laws protecting or affirming the right to abortion. And those in blue are those that have passed legislation to expand access, such as providing state insurance coverage for abortion, allowing for telehealth, and expanding the cadre of medical providers beyond a MD to include PAs, NPs, etc. So on the next slide, where are we headed? Um, I think, again, we're going to continue to see shifts. Um, I think there's, we see that all the states in red no longer have clinic-based access to abortion in the coming months. So this sort of shows a density plot of how far, like where there will be gaps in care. Um, so I think this, I think graphic is from the New York Times here and it shows the decline in legal abortions once clinics in red close with black representing a 40% decrease in legal abortions. And it's hard to know the long-term impact on other reproductive health or broader health issues these rulings will have. Already people are being criminalized or threatened with criminalization for having an abortion in these states. People are being denied timely care for miscarriage and ectopic pregnancies out of an abundance of fear of criminalization or penalties for the providers and healthcare systems that are receiving people in these conditions. Um, and people are being denied treatment for other health conditions which are treated with potential abortifacients, such as you know, people with rheumatoid arthritis are being denied their methotrexate um, because there's concern they might be using it for an abortion. So um, to lean into a specific example of a restriction, a severe restriction where we have more data, um, this slide depicts Texas's law. Um, this sort of data can provide some guidance for the impact on total abortion bans on abortion experiences and trajectories. So almost a year ago now, on September 1st, 2021, Texas Senate Bill 8, SB 8, went into effect, which at the time was the most restrictive abortion bill in the country. The law bans abortion upon detection of embryonic cardiac activity 
which can take place as early as five to six weeks after a person's last menstrual period and before many people know they are pregnant. The law also permits almost anyone to sue abortion providers and others who help someone obtain an abortion after the stage of pregnancy, and it has remained in effect since it was passed. So many of you may have seen this graph, which was from a New York Times article. Um, the article was titled, Most Women Denied Abortions by Texas Law Got Them Another Way. But the reality behind this graph is far more complicated. First, research from the University of Texas at Austin documented that in the month following implementation of SB 8, the number of abortions in Texas fell by half compared to the same month in 2020. And to note that even while many Texans may have gotten abortions, there's still a dramatic decline in abortions from March of 2021. It's also important to remember that just because people, so you see some of the area here that includes people who requested um, abortion pills online to be mailed to them. But just because people requested these, it doesn't mean that they all were able to obtain those pills or use them. And yes, while many people traveled out of state, travel is not an option for people who have childcare responsibilities, elder care responsibilities, adolescents who can't leave home, and so many more people. Not to mention that among those who traveled, most went to Oklahoma, where now an SB8 style law is in effect there and virtually no abortions are happening in that state either. So the distances people are having to travel um, are just increasing constantly as these sort of deserts, access deserts increase. Um, and I think critically, the, this graph, while it has so much important information, minimizes the tremendous effort that people working on the ground, whether in abortion funds and clinics at the grassroots level, to ensure people get care. So it's like Herculean levels of work that are going into getting people to abortion care. And it's frankly unsustainable amount of time, effort, resources, coordination, and money that should not have to be expended for access to a simple and very safe medical experience. Um, I could go on, but maybe I'll just continue. So uh, moving to the next slide, I'm going to focus in more on self-managed abortion. So I defined at the beginning that self-managed abortion is any action a person takes to end a pregnancy without clinical supervision. So this could be completely on your own. Again, it could be with counseling or support from uh, sort of these trained counselors or volunteers or feminist groups. Um, in a, in a variety of different ways. And again, in the US, we're hearing increasingly about self-managed abortion in the media as people are, um, there's now a vacuum where the state is not providing clinical care in so many states. So people are left to either travel to another state or to self-manage their abortion. I think it's important to note that self-managed abortion is not new. People have been self-managing their abortions um, well before we had clinical abortion care. Um, and it was interestingly as a tidbit on medication abortion, um, it was pregnant people in Brazil who actually first discovered that mesoprostol could be used as an abortive fashion. Um, it's originally a drug that was developed for stomach ulcers and had a warning label on the side that said, don't take this if you're pregnant because it'll cause a miscarriage. And a bunch of people who didn't want to be pregnant were like, huh, I wonder if I take this. And it found out that it worked and it's now gone through clinical trials and now been very medicalized, but it was actually first discovered in this sort of self-managed context. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm going to talk to you now a little bit about what we know, some of the research on self-managed abortion. Um, and much of this research comes from countries where abortion has been very legally restricted for a long time. And in these countries, there are community-based organizations and activist networks, often called accompaniment groups or safe abortion hotlines because they accompany people through an abortion. 
Um, these groups provide people with information and support on how to safely and effectively self-manage their abortion. They usually recommend these WHO medication protocols. It's the exact same medications you would get if you went to a clinic, taken the exact same way. It's just people are doing it without an MD telling them to do it. They're doing that with information or counseling through these non-clinical folks. So um, there are a lot of um, people try to self-manage their abortions in a variety of ways, um, including herbs, some physical trauma, some very unsafe methods such as physical trauma or um, ingesting chemicals, et cetera. But what I'm gonna focus on is medication abortion. So people who end their pregnancies using these pills. So very importantly, I think, due to all the research that has been done, um, there have been the WHO in March of this year revised their recommendations about medication abortion to sort of fully endorse self-managed abortion as a safe and effective option for ending a pregnancy. Um, and I think it's this is a pretty monumental shift. Um, but I think there's sort of, despite this confidence that self-managed abortion with pills is medically safe, many people still aren't aware that medication abortion even exists. There was a recent Kaiser Family Foundation survey where only about 30% of people of reproductive age had heard of medication abortion. Um, and it's also, even if people are aware of it, they might lack sort of the technical or medical literacy to navigate accessing these pills in the US context right now. Um, and for those people who do know about it, are able to access it, there's legal risk that really remains. Um, specifically, as I mentioned, many of the abortion restrictions that are going to affect explicitly criminalize people. They don't just try to ban abortion, they impose punitive punishments, criminal punishments for anyone who supports someone to access a medication abortion or any abortion. Um, and as with so many things in this country, we see this risk of criminalization fall disproportionately on people who are already overly surveilled and criminalized black people, indigenous people, people of color, trans and non-binary people, immigrants and other marginalized groups. So again, like I think a core takeaway for any of you listening is that we know from a lot of rigorous research that people who use these pills on their own to end their pregnancy, it's effective and it's very safe medically, but legal risk remain. And so there's a lot of messaging and outreach needed to raise awareness of ways that people can protect themselves against the risk of criminalization for self-managing. And there's a lot of really interesting um, work around protecting digital privacy. So, you know, using things like DuckDuckGo or a Tor browser, um, not communicating through sites or apps where your communication can be subpoenaed, um, using things like Signal. And there's also a lot of work that needs to be done to communicate to clinicians, um, particularly those in EDs or OBGYNs that actually, as of right now, there is no state that mandates reporting of a patient for self-managed abortion to the authorities. So figuring out how to communicate to clinicians that they are not obligated to report a patient they suspect has self-managed. And in fact, they certainly should not um, because we know if they're acting from an evidence-based space, we know that um, criminalization is, is, is only harmful here. So to get a little more specific, um, I've said that sort of research has established the safety and effectiveness of self-use of these pills to end a pregnancy. Um, so one in particular study, I was the PI of this study called the SAFE study, where we um, recruited over a thousand uh, people who were self, were contacted safe abortion hotlines 
requesting information about a self-managed abortion. And we followed them forward over about a month to six weeks, um, conducting surveys with them at various time points, surveys over the phone um, to measure sort of what happened. Were they able to get pills? What types of pills did they get? How did they take those pills? What was the outcome of their abortion? Did they seek healthcare? And if so, why? And what did they receive? Um, and so the rationale behind this was despite, again, decades of randomized clinical trial data from clinical settings establishing that these medications are very safe and very effective for ending a pregnancy, there was some doubt about, well, if people use them on their own, what if they take them wrong? Or what if they're not able to self-assess when they need to seek care? So um, we designed a study to assess that. It was set up as a non-inferiority analysis. So if you move to the slide with this non-inferiority plot, um, it gets 19 and the red background. This shows um, what we did was we looked at abortion completion among people who self-managed and then compared it to the abortion completion we see reported when people use these pills in a clinical setting and assessed to say, is, a, is it any less effective to use these pills on your own versus to use them in a clinical setting? And we were able um, to establish that self-managed abortion with these pills is non-inferior to clinical management of, of these pills for medication abortion. So moving to the next slide, self-managed abortion in the US inequities. I do wanna point out, I think this was actually the paper that the organizers first reached out to me um, related to this, but we, um, I also led a study that was a national survey in the United States of transgender and non-binary people assigned female at birth. Um, and we looked at a lot of different things, but I think something to point out in, you know, population-based nationally representative samples of primarily cisgender women in the U.S., there's an estimate that about seven or eight percent of women will self-manage an abortion in their lifetime. And that was pre-Dobbs. Similarly, the study we did among trans and non-binary folks, we found that about 19% of people who had ever been pregnant had self-managed an abortion. So nearly 3x what we see among cis women. And the reasons our trans and non-binary participants gave for self-managing was feeling like clinical care was just absolutely inaccessible to them, either because of um, fear of sort of mistreatment, misgendering in the space, feeling totally unwelcome in a space that's oriented only towards women. Um, things like, you know, there's only forums for women, there's only restrooms for women, the sign says women, you know, um, beyond on, on top of all of the other barriers that cis women face to abortion care, including insurance coverage, distance to facilities, costs, etc. Um, so it, it just, and it was also striking when we asked trans and non-binary participants what they did to try to end their pregnancy on their own. Notably, not a single person used medication. They tried primarily herbs and then a range of these other methods, some of which are just ineffective, but not harmful. And then some of which are just outright harmful. So I think it's just always important to remember that there's wide variation um, and that there's a need for more information and targeted outreach to reach some of the most vulnerable communities. So to the slide 21, self-managed abortion key takeaways. I know I've presented a lot of information um, and just wanted to say, I think the big takeaways about self-managed abortion with medications are that it is very safe medically. It is very effective. Um, it's about you know 95 to 99% of people will be able to safely end their pregnancies with just the pills. Um, 
the FDA approves medication abortion for use on label up to 10 weeks, but there's a lot of research demonstrating that these pills are actually very safe and effective through later into pregnancy. Um, you actually need a slightly lower dose because the uterus is, is more primed and receptive to the pills, but they will absolutely expel the pregnancy tissue um, later in the pregnancy as well. But again, despite this medical safety and effectiveness, there is this legal risk. There have been over 60 people criminalized and in the US for self-managing their abortion since, 20, since the year 2000. Um, and there are steps people take to protect their risk. So to wrap up, I know that was a really broad um, sort of big, um, lots of topics related to abortion, but I think, again, bringing this back to the audience, this series, what is the role for scientists and public health researchers in this sort of post-Roe America where we find ourselves? And I think, what do we do? What's next? What is our role as scientists? And I will personally say it has felt um, easy to despair in some moments due to there's overwhelming evidence on the essential role of abortion in healthcare and public health. And yet that evidence has been set aside when it term, comes to legal decisions. But I think indeed, in though we know that we broadly understand what the harms will be of these legal restrictions, I think one of the roles of, of public health research as scientists is to continue to measure what we're seeing, to document the harms so that these harms don't become invisible. And I think it's also our role to be responsive, uh, to listen to people on the ground, to learn from our partners globally, and to evaluate interventions that make things even a little better in the face of such challenge. Um, and again, I think if this is a broad audience of scientists, just to really emphasize, there is rigorous, rich, um, vast quantities of science measuring the benefits of abortion and the harms of restricting access to abortion. And if you have a voice as a scientist in conversations on um, policy related to this, um, I hope some of this information is useful. And I'll end there. Well, thank you so much, Heidi, uh, for this very um, interesting educational um, presentation. Uh, this was really, um, you did such a wonderful job. Um, explaining everything and um, I want to compliment you on uh, your research and the work you do. It's really important and we really appreciate that you shared this with us in such a, in such a great way here today. And um, a very practical question I wanted to address um, that the audience had, um, how much does um, a self-managed abortion kit cost more or less here in the US? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it varies. So um, there's a number of ways that people can access the pills. Some people order directly from many online pharmacies, most of which are based in India. Some people go through, there's a group called Aid Access um, based out of Europe, where there's actually a physician who will write a prescription based in Europe and mail the pills. Um, so those sorts of routes usually cost anywhere between 180 up to like 300 or $400. Um, and versus there's like, for instance, there's a group called Las Libres based in Mexico that is mailing anyone in the US who needs them the abortion pills for free. Um, and I think we'll increasingly see more groups entering the space like that. Um, and that's in comparison to 
the cost of accessing a clinical abortion averages around $500 or $600 across the U.S. in the first trimester. And beyond that, it jumps up to over $1,000. And that's just the clinical cost without considering travel, overnight stays that comply with waiting periods, childcare, lost wages, et cetera. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, I really, um, you know, I, I really was impressed by the amount of research that is already there. Um, so um, my my question is, um, what what? It's probably not scientific. So, how do you think is the best way we should talk about this? Like, what? How can you? advise us how we should communicate uh, the research uh, to people um, so people know I talk about the facts and um, that this is um, a treatment women um, need access to and it's, so so how you know what's your advice how, how, how do <laughs> yeah people... it's a good question and a big question um... I mean, I so much of the conversation around abortion in the U.S. and I think everywhere gets lost in this debate of like, well, is it a life and is the fetus a life? And I think in many ways that's a red herring because it's not a it's it's just about um, it's about bodily autonomy. It's about I think no one denies that the pregnant person is alive and is alive. Um, and I think my recommendation is sort of focusing on the research and the science. Um, I'm happy if there's a space to share resources. There's like annotated bibliography came out of the all the errors what they've measured in people's lives um, that I think make the points pretty clearly and powerfully. And I also think in terms of using for op-eds in local papers, national, regional papers, um, within your departments. I mean, I think we're each, depending on where we're situated in the country, we'll see changes in our own healthcare coverage and what we're able to access and what our universities or institutions are covering. And I think even at those sort of very small levels, your organization, for those of you who work in you know, companies or industry, like what is your organization doing? What is covered for your staff? Making the case there in those spaces as well as um, sort of in the broader public conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for that advice. And I want to um, yeah open up the questions for Serena. I know Victoria, she might not be a Joyce, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask about uh, um, the a report I heard that sounded like it was just terrible even for people who had miscarriages. Like in one case, the woman um, was told the, the fetus was not viable, but she had to wait to see if she got worse, you know, so it was threatening her life. Um, you know, the doctors were afraid of getting put in jail. And so they had to tell her, well, go home until you get worse, you know, like your fever has to get higher and, and you know, so on, waiting for her to become septic. 
Um, you know, how, how damaging is that going to be in addition to all the other issues? Thanks. Very damaging. Um, yes, unfortunately, I mean, that from the day these individual state bans have gone into effect when the Dobbs decision came out even before some states had changed their laws. Um, we are hearing from our OBGYN colleagues and friends and um, just every single, I mean, just across the country, this is happening. People are coming in with miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies. They're being left to bleed for hours in emergency rooms, not because the providers have any doubt as to what is needed care-wise, but because people are very afraid of losing their licenses. So many of these state laws um, require stripping a clinician of their license to practice if they're found to be in violation of these laws. And because these laws are written by legislators who are not medical doctors, um, they're very vaguely worded and there is a lot of room. And also knowing these laws are not based in science, um, there's a lot of concern that they will be enforced as we have already seen over the past 20 years, not as intended, but to sort of punitively um, deter physicians and make them feel less safe about interacting with someone who's pregnant. You know, and the people who've drafted these laws say that's not the intent, that medical societies will sort this out. But um, we're seeing cases of patients being told to get on planes and travel to another state for care, but being warned and given guidance on what to do if they go septic and go into shock or pass the pregnancy on the plane. It's like truly abhorrent, just outrageous situations that people are being put into because of concern about how these laws will be interpreted. Yeah, thank you for your answer. I just wanted to, first of all, thank you. Um, incredible presentation and report, really important. Um, obviously incredibly timely. I just want to reiterate, you know, my personal experience as just a filmmaker when I was in New Orleans in the early 2000s, I saw, a, you know, an attack on healthcare that started off, you know, with children where children weren't allowed to go to the nurse unless they got permission, or should I say junior high and high school, you know, they, they were stopping children from going to the nurse and getting access to healthcare, no HPV vaccines, um, for prisons in Louisiana, they would refusing to even, um, allow men to have condoms in prisons. So it was a broad attack that just started with really, hindering access to healthcare. I was making a documentary for an organization that was teaching young women about prenatal care, and they were telling me how hard it was even for young women to access healthcare. So if you could address how this really has a broad, not just abortion, which is incredibly very serious and a, and a right, but how this affects healthcare as a whole. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yes, you know, my work is about abortion. This, well, many of these conversations are about abortion, but I think what this, there's actually quite a lot of parallels with the restrictions on abortion access to restrictions on gender affirming care to restriction. It's sort of, this represents deeply invasive government um, interference into what 
science argues need to remain individual decisions about what's best for someone's body, what they want for their body, what their body can handle, what their family can handle um, in private conversation with a provider or not as needed. Um, so I think regardless of how people feel about abortion, these bans represent very, um, I mean, truly dangerous, harmful medically um, incursions into clinical providers being able to make recommendations and provide treatment for their patients that they think is what is necessary in many instances immediately to save their lives. Again, as I mentioned, pregnancy is not without risk, particularly in the United States. We have some of the highest maternal morbidity and mortality of any comparable nation economically. Um, and we see, again, racial disparities along those lines. So I think from a higher level view, it's like, how do you feel about people with no medical or scientific background enacting wide ranging restrictions on what sort of health care you can have, even when that goes against the view of your medical provider? Um, and then I think when you think about the context of restricting abortion across how that impacts the rest of people's health, including young children up through adulthood, um, there's so much that's very hard to measure, but that we like we have been living in this country for 50 years with this presumption that we have a constitutional protection for abortion access. And while that may sound specific to abortion, there's so much about how women, anyone who can get pregnant has lived their life under the assumption of if they should get pregnant, what the options are that are available to them. And that affects how women and people who get pregnant show up in the workspace. That affects how people plan for their families. It affects their educational aspirations. It affects power dynamics and relationships. And it really, um, I'm not sure if this is where you were getting at, but I just to say that like the ramifications are extend far beyond people being able to end a specific pregnancy. I was, uh, well, I first want to thank you for your talk and, um, and, and just the, the effort put into getting this research out as a public health issue. And in terms of, you know, the, the areas of where people are, are most vulnerable and restricted, um, and in also in particular to your work in in transgender and non-binary cases where they in some, you know, in many cases, uh, it's a double, you know, double restrictions in terms of, um, you know, uh, the barriers that they face. I'm wondering how we can more effectively get the public information out to them and options where the dissemination of information is also restricted in addition to all the other challenges. Um, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yes, so many thoughts. Um, but the, I mean, specifically like one very specific to that piece related to dissemination of information, um, information about medication abortion, information about the, um, recommended way to take medication abortion and doses. Um, there's active legislators in various states across the country right now trying to make it illegal to share information about the existence of medication abortion, about the 
you know, what the recommended protocols are for using them because it is understood that people can access these pills on their own and use them to safely end a pregnancy and people, um, so it's, again, this focus on abortion, this, these bans on abortion are very rapidly expanding beyond that to focus on provision of information and restricting what sort of information is provided. And again, regardless, extrapolate this to any other situation to see that certain information about safe information is about decriminalized. Oh, you cut out um, at a at a critical time. I'm wondering if your connection is oh, no. restored. Is this better? This is better. Yeah. I, okay. Just, I think we missed the last bit of your answer. I'm not quite sure where I cut out, but just saying that again, sort of zooming out. Whatever your thoughts are on abortion, the fact that we're seeing these restrictions on provision of a type of healthcare is now extending to provision on restrictions and criminalization on provision of um, information about healthcare, um, I think is very deeply concerning. Thank you. I mean, um, if I may, would you say that um, education, obviously, based on what you've uncover uncovered and people that you've spoken to, that education is key? Yes, I think education is key. And again, we've sort of expanded beyond even just the health piece of it because information is key on, you know, laws are changing. Where can people access legal clinical care where they can't access clinical care? What support is available to them to travel to access care where they can't travel, giving them access to information on how safe options for ending their pregnancy outside of a clinic. Um, and then coupled with that has to be information on protecting themselves from legal risk and criminalization. Um, because we know that people are already targeted for this and we're gonna see it disproportionately fall on people who are already the most marginalized. Just to pick up on some of the comments on the chat, um, some of the comments have, you know, to follow on to the information uh, pointed out that it's, it's um, not only a restriction of information to the patient, but um, in some cases, the doctors are, are offering opposition to that. I'm wondering, in, in a more global context, um, how progress can be made? <laughs> that is a great question. I mean, I'm sorry, I haven't been able to follow the chat, but I think um, which is, we see in the yeah US, Japan Japan yeah, was mentioned. Okay, um, I think there are many lessons from other settings where, in terms of positive examples, where um, abortion is um, covered. People do you know aren't required to pay out of pocket here. There's intense restrictions on coverage for abortion, um, where there are not there is not interference on the provision of abortion by the state. It's left to people who are experts in pregnancy care, abortion care, to make the calls about what's needed um, 
and again, like we're in this wild situation in the US where there is medically inaccurate information that providers are required to read to their patients. So it enters a space where the abortion provider is saying, look, I have to read you some information that the state says I have to read you. It is not true. It is not accurate, but I am required to read it to you. And then they have to read, you know, risks of abortion that are not actually risks of abortion. Um, so like that sort of interference in provision of information by providers is also um, just, I think none of us want to go see a healthcare provider and be forced to hear risks to our health that are not actually accurate. Um, yeah, I um, have invite like there are more people on stage. Um, so I wanted to invite Guta, Dr. Sharon, uh, Duan, um, please flash your microphone or just uh, speak in PTR order. Thank you. Hello, good evening. Thank you, Katarina. And uh, good evening to everybody. I don't think I have much to add because I guess it's a subject that we've been talking for months already. But um, coming from Brazil and uh, bringing a perspective from the global south where I think it's around 43% or 39%, I'm not sure now. I used to have the precise number of the deaths between women between the age of 15 to 20 years, 28 years old in Latin America, and that includes Brazil, it's because of non-access to safe medical procedure to, to, to interrupt a pregnancy. So I come from a perspective that uh, it's a human right to have access to safe medical procedure and that in that case we are talking about public health and we are talking about social justice because the privileged women in Latin America, they go to private clinics and they have everything despite of law or anything but the non-privileged women and in majority they are black and indigenous women they die so that's just uh, unfortunately the note i have to bring because i find important to mention that uh, in different societies the debate around the same issue it's it can be quite different as well and i keep saying for us is not only about our body our choice it's about inclusion and social justice and access to a human right i agree <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I also apologize. I, I, I have about five more minutes, but would love if there's anyone else who wanted to ask a question. Maybe Dr. Sharon or Duane, I see you on here. Yeah. 
Hi, yes, this is Dr. Sharon Smith. Um, someone who invited me up before I was driving, so I couldn't, and I was just listening to, um, this has been such a great room. Um, so I'm a board certified obstetrician gynecologist. I practice in Texas. So I've um, had to deal with the restrictive abortion laws for months now before um, Roe versus Wade was um, overturned. Um, and you guys touched on a lot of uh, great topics. For example, I currently actually have a patient who has what we called a missed abortion, meaning she presented to me um, for pregnancy. And once I did her ultrasound, there was no heartbeat. Counseled her about her options and what the restrictions are. And she elected for a DNC. So I had to send her home, bring her back a few days later, just to confirm again that there's no heartbeat. Then I had to send her to um, radiology, ultrasound technician, radiologist, for someone else to confirm that there was no heartbeat. And only then I'm allowed to, to schedule her for um, the procedure. So it's, um, it's, it's a task, um, because before I would just, you know, this is what my patient needs and, and let's get the patient taken care of. Um, so yeah, so it, and I think it's really just going to get, um, worse. Um, and meanwhile, with restricting abortion services, we are not addressing the high maternal mortality, especially around, among women of color, because pregnancy is dangerous. Someone did mention that earlier, and pregnancy is dangerous. Um, you have a higher risk of hemorrhage, higher risk of death, so many things that can go wrong and do go wrong um, in pregnancy. So just restricting um, abortion services without addressing, um, you know, the, basically the, the um, ramification of, um, of restricting abortion services is just not addressed. Um, and not to mention the social impact on women and children. Um, you're forcing more women into poverty, more children into poverty. And we don't address um, even social programs to help, you know, um, people, women and children in indigenous um, or marginalized communities. So um, there's just a lot to think about, a lot to do, a lot to unpack. And I don't know, I mean, like, where's the end point? Like, like how are we going to um, turn this around and fix this or help? Um, people who really need help because um, the woman, the people who are going to suffer really are women and children, especially in the poorer communities. And this is Dr. Sharon and I yield the mic. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Sharon, and um, just empathy for the frustrations and challenges I'm sure you've gone through providing care in Texas right now. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And I, you know, I'm I'm not I'm a scientist, so I'm I'm not part. You know, I don't know. You know, I can't help, but um, like in that way, in a direct way. But um, I think I didn't want to go there, but I think a lot of like a lot of 
burden is put on the shoulders in the U.S. on women. There is no protection when you have to recover from a pregnancy. There is no free daycare. Um, there is literally no support. There is no child support financially for women that have children, like in European countries. Like, um, there's no doula that comes over for free to visit after you had a child. There's um, nothing. And I don't even understand, like birth rates in Europe are so much lower. I don't even understand how women get children here in the year. Like, and then the, the, the higher um, childbirth um, death rate is concerning. And then also, I read this here in Nature, um, uh, art, um, a paper that uh, pregnant women in the U.S. are more than two times higher likely to uh, die from homicide. Um, and then there's a law of um, in the many states that the mother has um, the obligation to protect. So mothers go in jail for having an abusive uh, partner. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know how, and then on top, there's no help and there's punishment. And then on top, you're not allowed to not have children. <laughs> um, it's, um, I, I don't, I can't, I, I don't follow why um, women are being treated that way. I, I really don't understand because there's all this hurrah and about um, marriage, you know, this huge money that gets thrown out of the window for a ring and for marriage and for parties before the baby gets born and and parties after and and but when you really go down to it, there's no respect. <laughs> um, yeah, that's my rant. I'm sorry to have that rant. But um, Duen, uh, you you came to the stage, and Elle, um, feel free to to chime in. Thank you. Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. You know, it's difficult working as a maternal and child health supervisor at a conservative health department um, in these times. I, um, you know, we work with these infant mortality prevention programs where we're working with just the, the most socially vulnerable. These women are, are usually Black, they're poor, they're on Medicaid or other social assistance programs. And our fear is that we're just bracing ourselves to be busier because these laws affect women who can't afford to take a day off of work and maybe take a, 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 a day long vacation to go somewhere and where the procedure is legal and, and have it taken care of without any repercussions. And so we're just very, um, Bad. Um, at the same time, I guess our health department, even though they're conservative, they did make a strong message that they'd like us to really push and advocate 
for women being on contraception and birth control so that they aren't forced with the difficult decision um, to, you know, to have to terminate. And, and in the state of Ohio, where I live, they have like this six-week trigger law. But you all are, are much smarter than I am, especially you doctors. Um, the procedure is generally not performed until seven or eight weeks. So it makes it look like on paper that they're doing something. But we know the reality is that most of those procedures aren't performed until around the eight-week mark. And so we're just... Um, we're very fearful and I thank you all for being on the front lines and, and for allowing spaces like this for to address the issue. And since I did not lead with the joke because I did not want to get kicked out of the room, what I do not want to see for those of you who saw the movie Four Colored Girls, I always fear that it'll be someone like Macy Gray's character, kind of like the one that you went to go get like a a bot, like I, the room attracted me because I immediately thought of four colored girls where the girl got the abortion and she, the lady, the poor Macy Gray's character had like the surgical tools and was drinking and kind of used the, the alcohol to clean them. And, and while that seemed like a joke at the time, because I thought it was hysterically funny, we're living in a time where that could become the case. Um, and, and so I'm, my team and I are just bracing for just impact because it's going to affect all these poor women and our numbers are going to go up and we already experience high infant and maternal mortality rates among black women. And, and I think that overturning Roe v. Wade just, just makes it an, an increased burden for them. And, and with that, I'll end my point. Thank you so much, Dwayne. I uh, really appreciate your share and um, yeah, and and what you told us about. And I I'm the same way. I I couldn't believe um, that we would get back to this. Um, I I share your sentiment there. Hi, Al. How are you? Did did you want to comment or say something? Oh, hello. Long time, everyone. Hi, Catarine. I, I really didn't have much of a comment. I'm actually just listening. I mean, I do have my own views on abortion. Um, I'm not against it. Um, personally, I would not do it, but I would not keep another woman from doing it. Um, I guess my thing is now is more about this is, <sighs> it's very political. If you think about it, not, it's not just about women, but it's also about those people who believe that we should have smaller government and they believe that this um, uh, this should be handled by the states because you have to understand like the federal is like the big brother, the parent when the state isn't doing what they're supposed to do. So this is where you need to encourage people to go out and vote. Like no matter, you know, whether it's, you know, setting up, I, I know they do have mobile voting centers in certain uh, certain areas, making sure there are voting locations within, uh, uh, you know, urban communities where they usually are not held. Uh, just doing things like that and just uh, encouraging people to go out and vote and not just during uh, a president, uh, um, during a cycle for president, but you need to vote on your local 
state county levels because that is where your vote counts. Um, I know this because I come from that background. Um, working for a, a county, uh, mostly for smart city stuff, but I also used to volunteer at the voting, um, at the voting locations and stuff like that. So instead of us, I mean, it's dire, it's sad what's happening, but instead of us focusing on, 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 on the atrocities and being outraged, which we are always outraged and we spend so much time being outraged, we need to perform more actions. And the things that are within everyone's uh, realm in this room, depending on what country you're living in or what state that you're in or whatever, how much time you have is to vote at a, po um, you know, to volunteer at a voting location. A lot of times they don't have enough people or they don't have enough people to run those, uh, um, those voting locations. And it's nothing to get certified to run a voting location. And just to encourage others, whether in your family or in your community, just stress upon them how important it is to vote during those particular cycles. Don't wait for MTV or a celebrity to tell you to vote for president and join, you know, get all into the sensationalism because literally your representatives are the ones that represent the state. And if there's not enough people going out there to uh, vote those go guys out and vote new people in, then we're gonna have these situations where critical uh, legislation or critical policies are going to be removed because there's people out there that want smaller government. And I'm just focusing on that because I don't want to take it to a, um, you know, like talking about race and uh, uh, economics and financials just on it, whether it was, I mean, those are very two um, divisive uh, uh, things, Roe versus Wade, Brown versus the Board of Education. That's another thing that was uh, going to be on the chopping block, but there's other things too, because people want, the federal government to be smaller. And if you just look at it from that point of view, you know, we and understand why the federal government, why a lot of stuff is in their hands, um, you'll see why, or you can explain why it's important for people to go out and vote for their representatives, vote for their governors, vote for their uh, local county uh, counselors and stuff like that. And that's all I have to say. I invited my friend Abby in. I don't know if she's in because she's actually a practicing doula and uh, she knows more about uh, the abortion laws and birthing laws and things that go on the hospital than I do. So hopefully she pops in, but her profile name is Birth Babe, but her name is Abby. So hopefully she joins. That's all I have to say. I'm listening and I'm gonna get back to work. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Elle. Um, there she is, she I... just popped in as I said her name, the fairy godmother of dueling. She's right there below. <laughs> you might have to reset the room so she'll know what's going on, but I invited her in telling her that she should really be a part of this. So um, if she can answer any questions or give people more guidance about, uh, oh, you didn't have to mommy, but <laughs> more guidance um, about this stuff. But here, I invited her up, so hopefully she joins. Yeah, then let me take the opportunity to uh, reset the room a little bit. So. Heidi, um, I just want to acknowledge her again. She is a um, researcher. Um, she uh, is a epidemiologist um, doing uh, public health research and she focuses on reproductive health. Um, and uh, she, uh, the presentation is pinned on top of the room. 
uh, the presentation was mostly focused on health, um, what um, the risks are for abortion. They are really, really low. It's a very safe practice. Um, it's um, a way higher risk to be pregnant. So it's a life-saving life procedure. And you know, also self-managed medication abortion are uh, recommended by the World Health Organization and are very safe and effective. Um, uh, the problem is accessibility and that many women don't know that uh, they can get self-managed abortion through this very safe um, medications that are available. And of course, the problem is that uh, in some states now, uh, women that um, access this are at the risk of um, being prosecuted, basically. Uh, but in general, this is a, a health um, treatment and the health access issue uh, and access to um, health treatments is a human right. Um, so her presentation was um, mostly focused on that and um, and then we went on and discussed um, different topics um, about accessibility of different populations to abortions, um, inequalities, um, and so forth, and the consequences. Victoria, did you want to say something? Oh, I think she just... So welcome um, to the stage. Uh, Elle um, introduced you a little bit uh, for us. So uh, did you want to add maybe some of your expertise, your knowledge, uh, share something with us? Thank you for coming. Hey, good evening. Um, I can't talk right now. Just give me about like 10 minutes and then I can speak. So I'll just listen and then I can talk. Yes, thank you so much um, for uh, taking the time. Joyce, did you want to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, um, I would think that um, these abortion bans are going to greatly increase the number of children born with disabilities that are perhaps very serious and that are going to, you know, often fall upon families that cannot afford to, to raise children with disabilities. And so that's going to be a huge increase in burden upon the public system, you know, for like Down syndrome or I don't know, maybe even spina bifida. I, I'm not sure, but um, I haven't looked into that, but I would think that would be true. Anyone have? Yes, that usually happens when abortion is not accessible or uh, criminalized. In Portugal, back in time, um, when it was illegal to have abortions of poor families, it happened a lot. And um, in some rural areas, it was kind of also shameful so they would like hide um, children with severe disabilities and they were living under horrible conditions because people were not educated and didn't have any possibilities to take care of them adequately such as having wheelchairs and 
a house that's accessible or a school. So um, I agree, um, people that don't have access to, you know, elevators, um, wheelchairs, like all kinds of different, um, yeah, um, infrastructure. Um, yeah, that, that will be a huge problem and for sure it will lead to, in, to lead them to go to institutions. Um, another issue is that currently women that are um, receiving cancer treatment and uh, became pregnant or were pregnant and now have cancer and have to go on the cancer treatment cannot get abortions. And it's clear that the child is suffering and the mother is at higher risk of um, not making the treatment. Uh, that's another, for example, big current issue right now. I kind of wonder whether uh, <laughs> some of these consequences may affect some of the people who have been so pro, um, you know, a ban on abortion, whether eventually some of them might change their mind about about um, this when they get into a situation like we talked about before of, you know, having a miscarriage and then, you know, not getting proper treatment because the doctors are afraid to do anything. But, you know, I don't know, some people are so firm in their opinion, it may not change their minds. Thanks, I'm done. I just wanted to add, um, first of all, thank you for doing this room, amazing. Um, I just wanted to add that the trend that I had been mentioning, that I mentioned, actually started in the 80s. So, and this has been, you know, a long time coming. One thing I think would be interesting to discuss in the future is the exporting of these policies, because a lot of the aid that we, the United States provides to other countries has been also restricted to, um, you know, just to uh, not have any birth control whatsoever or any access or any information. So we're providing health care in other countries, but we're saying that they're not allowed to talk about family planning or access to, you know, abortion. Thank you. Um, yes, that is um, <laughs> like absurd theater situation type of, <laughs> but um, it's the sad truth currently. And then the other thing is, that people are that are in, in um, that have enough power to kind of change these policies and uh, put money out there for um, you know um, for um, advertisement basically of these um, laws. Um, they, if something like that happens to their families. They have money to go abroad and their teenage daughter goes one year abroad to a boarding school in Switzerland. That's what usually was the synonym, synonym for, you know, the teenage daughter got pregnant and is going one year abroad. <laughs> um, at least back in time, it was um, often like that. And, um, you know, the, in those families, they will find a way, um, but officially they will um, continue with the 
with the these views that's usually what what i could see in the past i don't know maybe people changed but um i can speak now but i was just going to say so i live in pennsylvania so right now um they are you know nothing has changed but what's really going to be important is going to be these primary elections coming up in November. Um, so we have to make sure um, that we're voting. Um, that way we can still protect those rights for those um, for when it comes to these abortion laws, because there are those those candidates who are running that are especially like the Republican Party that are there's I forget his name, but like he's a devout Christian. Um, his policy is that only have up till six weeks and it's with the exception of incest or rape i don't know if it includes if the mother's life is at risk i'm not sure i would have to read that policy again um so that's alarming and then i know in new jersey um governor wolf i'm sorry not governor wolf um i, I can't think of his name but uh with with the governor in new jersey He's, he's even allowing people who don't live in New Jersey to come to New Jersey if they have to get an abortion and they're being protected. Um, so I, I think it's important uh, for people to know their the laws because I've been reading stories in other states where if a mother has a miscarriage, they're being ch charged um, for killing their baby. And I, and I think it's very insensitive. I think it's asinine. Um, it's, it doesn't make any damn sense to me um it's it's our right to choose on what we want to do with our bodies um and it's just unfortunate that some of these uh red states have automatically said you can't have an abortion or you can't have an abortion and people are going to have to travel so what does it look like for people who don't have access to transportation or don't, don't even have the means um to travel uh so i know some some companies like walmart um have said they would help uh, their employees um, with funds if they need to, to get an abortion. So I, I think, you know, it's just doing the homework and knowing um, what your rights are. What I was wondering is, I think she mentioned that there was some organization in Mexico that was providing free abortion pills. And I was wondering if, if they are going to be able to do it without impunity. I mean, I would think that the state isn't going to be able to go after them in Mexico. Um, uh, the, I think the, some of the laws have been written like in Texas. So even if you go to another state, say if a family member reports you and you come back, you're still held by the laws of that state. So that's why it's important, sadly, that you're going to some of these young ladies, they, I mean, if they don't have a support system or people, uh, that they can talk to about this who aren't going to go and tell or aren't going to go try to send them uh, to jail. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just unfortunate, but like Abby was saying that, you know, you have to try to vote and, and try to, I don't know, maybe support, you know, support organizations that are doing something uh, like Walmart uh, for their employees and, you know, try to purchase more or either, you know, um, if they have like some type of philanthropic organization, do some donations, uh, any of that stuff. 
Um, but I, I can tell you now, though, you, they can be prosecuted. I know Texas is doing that. So if you go over to what's near Texas, I think California, and perform the abortion, and then a family member knows that you went and did this because you shared with them that you were pregnant, uh, they can report you. And that's why you need to um, take these uh, people running for office to task. Uh, there is a, you know, like a lot of people don't, do not know that, you know, you can get more time for having the abortion than the person who may have raped you or committed molestation. And, you know, they did four years probation or whatever because they don't have a criminal record but you have to do 10 to 15 for, you know, either aborting or either like some women, our bodies do, they, our bodies self-abort because the fetus may not, you know, be um, ideal for uh, conception. I mean, for, uh, for pregnancy. So, I mean, does it even cover some of that? So, I mean, like, like uh, Abby said, it's, you know, being aware, knowing your rights, and trying to create a community around these young women um, to support them when their families do not. Yeah, because what's, what's I was just thinking, be- you know, the voting, of course, that's very important. And I'm wondering, it makes me think of prohibition when it came to alcohol, and how they tried that for a while, and it just was a failure, and, and they eventually Yeah, it's just like what's going to happen. A lot of people don't, until there's a need um, for themselves to go through something, because that's how hu- it's human nature. Until it's something that directly affects them, then they'll be against it because they don't know, because they, you know, because they don't have a daughter or mother that have uh, gone through it. Or, you know, it just doesn't directly affect them. So they feel uh, entitled to be able to chastise others for their choices, regardless of what it is, you know, no matter what their circumstances. It's not up to me what it, you know, uh, what those things, and, and, but that's like I said, you need to, people need to start taking these representatives to task and making them ask, uh, answer uh, the hard questions. Well, if this is your law about this, then what is your law about that? What is your law on this? And then really, uh, exposing the hypocrisy, you know, not going up there yelling and, you know, just trying to get likes for your, your, you know, your TikTok or your page or whatever, but really being, you know, when you go after these guys, making sure you're informed, making sure you know the laws, making sure you know um, uh, 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 what outlets to go and share this information. Oh, I'm Ellen, I'm done, sorry. Yeah, thank you so much. And I agree. It's really important to, as Heidi said, I asked her for advice. How how do we, you know, because she mentioned in the end, everyone that is kind of comes from a scientific background and um, pleased to read up on the science, on the research and um, stay on the facts and there is plenty of resources here and in this presentation but um also um please reach out to me um i can also share heidi's email she she's very open to uh, send out resources there's plenty of research uh, and data out there and that it's in the interest of women's health 
public health um, and also socioeconomic and independency of women, uh, financial independency. So, and um, so, you know, it's really important, I think, to stay with the data, stay with the facts, um, to kind of um, educate and 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 bring the the right message across. Um, and uh, yeah, we can we can just stay with the research, and there's plenty. Uh, to bring the message across is um, so I think I agree Al, that's that's really important to to do it that way so in the meantime again I just wanted to mention again um, that um, for still for most states um, the medical abortion option um, is still there and um, is um, and people so every other type of abortion medical doctors and everyone else has to report or they will uh, be in trouble with the law basically so everyone that knows about it and um, in the states will if they don't report it they will um, get into trouble but this is not true for the medical at home abortion for many states still. So, and um, so I think that's really important to know. And, um, and they are really not expensive and they are very, very safe. Um, so yeah, if you know somebody that needs this, um, yeah, go ahead, Elle. Oh, sorry. No, I was typing. I think Abby was about to say something, but uh, someone else joined in. Oh, Abby, please go go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, oh my gosh, I just had it. You know what? Come back to me. When I remember, I'll flash my mic. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Um, yeah, for coming and for sharing and for supporting. Um, and I really uh, welcome you to um, check out the research Heidi did and her colleagues and people um, in this field of research. Um, it's, it's really important to be accurately informed and then make a decision um, I think that is crucial, and um, I think um, it's a really important topic for women um, because whenever you give women access to um, control um, how many children they want to have and when, um, usually the education level rises, the financial independence, um, and um, also then the independence to leave abusive relationships. Because uh, being pregnant in the US, you are more than two times more likely to die from homicide because um, women then tend to stay in abusive relationships because of financial dependency 
so um, I think this is also a very important factor to consider and um, yeah if any if we maybe uh, people want to share last comments um, about around this topic or like their main message they want to share or um, you know your thoughts please go ahead you're welcome to do so uh, thank you Um, I was just going to say that I think we're going to start seeing, we're going to start hearing stories about um, people or young women and girls having um, unsafe abortions, like trying to do it on their own. And that's the, the part that worries me versus where they can have access to have a safe abortion. Um, it just reminds me of like the Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if anyone watched that show of it's kind of like we're going back in the 1950s so it's it's really unfortunate um and you know i, I try to give people as much information as i can because i definitely do support um those who want that option if they want to have an abortion um i definitely support them in that um i you know i don't want anyone to feel like they have to do it on their own without the proper resource and knowledge so that's why i wanted to have a great conversation and thank you Elle, for bringing me to the room Always, I just know you're passionate about this and I always hear you talk about it and you're more knowledgeable about it than me. Yeah, thank you, Al, and thank you so much uh, for sharing that. Um, I agree, it's really important to do it the right way and there are safe medications out there um, that you can use them at home safely. So uh, please use that and if you know somebody that needs those uh, or knows that um, they don't have access otherwise please um, pass this information along and also the presentation is open for everyone to share the link um, so yeah please share the information along and um, yeah um, sorry. I was going to just say too oh, yeah. like just so y'all know it's not illegal to share this information I know some people are concerned about anonymity and if somebody comes after them and about this like this falls under the freedom of information act you can always share this uh this stuff out and and not you know feel guilty about uh about any type of uh, recourse occurring i mean there's information on the uh out on the web about how to uh build a bomb or how there's manifestos out there so i mean if people can go out their way and post that stuff and it not be taken down then you can post this and share it out without uh being worried yeah i wanted to make like a larger scale comment about that i find it really puzzling how in states such as Texas where they want a small government and my body my choice with vaccines and uh, small governments how they start to implement vigilante laws which reminds me you know I grew up in Germany there was still East Germany with the Stasi and <clears throat> a lot of vigilante laws uh, going on how 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 does that make sense and why are people not concerned that this is kind of a first step towards medical information being used to prosecute 
at people criminally and this is a really high step towards um, uh, controlling personal lives and uh, with a vigilante law and I think that's really concerning and I think not just women should be concerned men everyone should be concerned because this is a really big step away from um, what usually I think people identify with the US and freedom and also um, that your health data should be private and um, yeah I just wanted to add that point um, thank you I think I also want to add um, a, a comment in at that level as well, but just about the importance of the priority of it being a safety issue and a health issue and how that can sometimes get lost and with either whataboutism or a philosophical or an ideological argument. And, you know, there's, there is a, there is a standards problem, you know, no one would argue, for example, about the importance of improving automated self-driving safety, um, because it's a safety issue. It's, um, it's a health issue. Um, and, you know, comments about worrying about AI taking over, you know, are, are, are just not even admissible. It's a safety issue. But when it comes to the information about a public health, um, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it turns the stomach personally when the discussion goes to these more vague and abstract philosophical points. It's a safety issue. It's public health. And I just wanted to, to comment on that. Uh, Joyce, did you did you want to say like some last comments summary? Um, if not, that's also okay. Uh, yeah, actually, right now I was just googling um, these. I was curious about these Mexican organization, and actually, it looks like there's more than one of them. And um, I was going to post them in the chat. I was going to post this article that I found in the chat because um, they were saying this, this article is written just this August. So it was after the, the ban. And so um, one of them is called Cardona Alanis and another one is called, uh, let's see, it's got the word abortar in the, in the name of it in one of them. But yeah, Necesito Abortar Mexico. So anyway, I can put that in the chat once it once I can get the link. But um, anyway, I would think, you know, and, and especially because they're outside of Mexico. I mean, they're outside of the country. I would think they would be immune from you know, going to jail for doing this. 
but I don't know. I would assume. No, it depends on like extradition laws, which depend. Uh, I mean, extradition laws when it comes to uh, that's if they plan on staying there. One, it depends on like how much does somebody care, uh, either family or that state trying to prove a point when it comes to abortion. Um, again, if that person does something somewhere else and then comes back uh, home, depending on the laws within their state, it, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, that's how uh, Texas wrote theirs. Doesn't matter where it occurred, you are still liable for it. And it's not like, uh, and the thing is you may not get jail time, but they may try to, uh, uh, civilly or financially uh, go after that person by giving them a, a fine that they cannot afford, which is also a, another form of uh, financial imprisonment. But I think of the extradition laws as being related to the federal level. I can't, I don't know yeah. if Texas could force the extradition yes, they, from uh, Mexico. Mexico has to agree to it. But Mexico is not going to fight the U.S. government on it. I mean, they could say, no, we don't feel like it because it's going to take a lot of man hours to do it. All of this has some type of financial uh, a trail going to it. Like, you know, someone's going to make money off of it. It's like that judge, you know, the private prison system and the judge to cash for kids. Uh, Abby should remember him because it took place in uh, Pennsylvania and I think Lancaster, you know, uh, funneling kids to the prison system. You know, there was a financial gain to that. The more kids that were in prison, the more money per head that uh, uh, people were making. And it wasn't just that judge. The same thing with this, uh, the abortion stuff. You know, they're probably, the, I mean, there will be money to be made, unfortunately. Um, there's another example in Florida with the drug testing and uh, people on, um, social needing additional social services they were drug testing uh people who needed to apply for WIC and cash uh because uh there's a stereotype that people like that are doing drugs and they're just trying to scam the system so they're drug testing come find out the financial incentive was on the representative that actually pushed that because his wife actually was the head of the drug company that was doing the testing and the only reason why they found that out is because he was busted with cocaine, pills, and other stuff uh, on him while being drunk or inebriated. So there, if you can find the financial trail, um, a lot of times uh, you can see, you know, what's going on as well. Well, I guess we'll find out because, I mean, currently, according to this article, it's well known these organizations are doing this. So if they continue to do it, we'll know that they're able to get away with it. <laughs> Without, uh, I don't see so far in the article anything about fear of uh, extradition. So I guess we'll find out. So there but, are uh, two major like Brazil doesn't extradite to the U.S. and Portugal doesn't. I I don't know about other countries, but those two don't. Yeah, if you're seeking like political asylum, like Cuba and there's like certain stipulations like on why you left whether extradition will occur. Because again, it's there's a financial piece to it, like how much man hours will it take? Is it even worth doing? You know, and for Mexico, uh, it may, um, uh, the other thing too is like buying of the data because I know there's going to be somebody tracking. They're not just going to freely give somebody something because if there's an adverse uh, reaction to that, because, you know, um, 
there's still, you know, others because not everybody can take all medicines and somebody might have a reaction to it that they didn't know about or have some underlying condition and something may occur. So there is like this, uh, these other what ifs that we have to be concerned with. I mean, those what ifs are, I would say, just hypothetically five or 10% of that equation, which doesn't mean it should not be offered but there will be some tracking of the women and, you know, the U.S. for some reason may, or the state might ask for that data, you know, because it's all about data collection too. Uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, Susan, uh, did you want to um, have a last comment or question? Yeah, I just wanted to thank, you know, our healthcare workers and the people that are really trying to help people. We had two providers on stage and I believe they both left, but, you know, just uh, kudos and tremendous amount of strength and uh, to them and, in, and we're indebted to them. I mean, we've just gone through this epidemic that we're still going through and now, um, people are on the front lines helping people and we have to really support them. So that's my final comment. Thank you. Yes, thank you for that. And I wanted to mention it, and I forgot earlier when Heidi was still here, that um, more and more maternities in rural areas and um, areas like poor areas um, are closing because usually hospitals lose money with um, maternities, uh, especially in um, and, and places where a lot of people are, um, um, don't have um, good health insurances. So um, there is additionally um, an increase in childbirth death and um, uh, also uh, children just being born under high risk because uh, the mothers have to travel for hours, maybe sometimes even um, that's helicopters uh, to um, maternities. Uh, they have to give birth in ERs where there's nobody trained uh, to deliver a child and to take care of the child um, uh, or do at home birth at high risk because it's really expensive to get a medical helicopter. So um, additionally, women are under really high stress in these areas because of COVID and that um, hospitals have a high death and had to close down maternities. And additionally, a lot of nurses quit their jobs. And if there are not enough nurses around, even if they um, we um, the, the maternities have to close down if they don't have enough staff. Uh, so they have to turn people away um, because of that. So uh, it's it's a really a concerning development in um, giving care to uh, pregnant women. So um, that's an additional problem currently. So yeah, thank you everyone. I really, um, appreciate the support and for um, everyone coming here. Um, I think this is a really important issue and um, 
this is um, a health matter and also a human rights matter. And um, I, I really appreciate every single person that came and that commented and asked question and just was here to support. And Heidi is not here anymore, but um, I really uh, appreciate her work and uh, for her coming here and sharing this with us um, in a data-driven manner. And um, yeah, thank you so much, everyone. No problem, you're welcome. I'm actually gonna sit out at work, but thank you guys, it was nice meeting you and I'll try to chime in again. Bye. Thank you, Al. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank and you. it was very interesting and very concerning. Very yes. Thank you. And very important to get the information out. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Bye.